What's up, y'all? This is Melo M I M E on Twitter. Coming with y'all, come to y'all for another reading of that meter, man. Uh, this time around, I'm gonna be discussing civil rights libera- liberalism and how it's been pigeonholed as the primary function of black politics in America. Um, I think oftentimes we see the civil rights movement as this pristine uh, project of people insisting, insisting that they uh, get these, these set of um, requests, demand, and, um, and once upon uh, seeing this this idea coming to uh, come to life of um, of these demands, everything's okay after that. It's just perfect. <laughs> um, that's just not the ways the civil rights movement went down. Um, oftentimes we don't acknowledge the nameless, the people that, uh, the people that aren't necessarily at the forefront of the movement, but we're instrumental nonetheless. We're revolutionary, radical, what have you, militant, (laughs) all your favorite buzzwords that y'all niggas bastardized today. (laughs) Um, they were all of that back then Um, and they don't get the credit that they deserve I don't think black organization black organizers don't get credit period I think that they deserve Um, that shit is hard dude getting a lot of people on the same agenda getting people to a set political uh, orientation it's hard it's hard it's gonna be hard and um a lot of the ways that we maneuver that uh that terrain is gonna have to be uh reappraised it's gonna have to be re rethought of re uh responded to again cause uh a lot of these 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 ordeals aren't 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 going anywhere, and maybe that that can be contrib- contributed to this framing of the civil rights movement and how it's been idealized as this perfect uh, uh, movement with perfect outcomes. I think so. Um, it, it definitely can be seen that way. We we failed at that time because we we romanticized what we were doing at that time. We romanticized the historiography. We 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 romanticized the narrative of of that particular time period on both sides. The people playing and the people uh, against the players, <laughs> the opposition, the other team. <laughs> But yeah, man, black organization and black organizing is difficult. 
but it's well worth it at the end because them, them ground pounds, that shit gonna mean something at the end. That shit gonna mean something at the end, I really believe it is. And I still got a little bit of hope amongst my Afro pessimistic leanings. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I just want to read a couple uh, sections from uh, a couple books. Uh, the first one's going to be Robin D.G. Kelly's Culture Politics, or Race Rebels Culture Politics in the Black Working Class. Uh, he mainly focuses on the urban South um, and the Black Working Class interaction with uh, other class, social class markers. And um, how they how they had to politically and uh, socially move in a certain way to get their demands met. And uh, here's one section: Examining interaction between the civil rights movement and Birmingham's Black poor provides an excellent case study for exploring how everyday forms of resistance shape and come in contact with formal political movements. The poor, I argue, develop their own strategies of survival and resistance, which, in some cases, placed as much emphasis on issues of personal dignity and or state-sectioned violence as on material needs. Indeed, political protests and survival strategies, ranging from the reappropriation of property to the violent uprising of 1963, often came in conflict with the political agenda of the civil rights movement, and yet the very presence of mass demonstrations increased uh, police repression, and organizational militancy served to partly unveil the hidden transcript. Resistance strategies were less evasive and more confrontational, especially after 1963. Um, that, that, that shakes up uh, everything we've kind of been taught in school about uh, that time, we don't think of the black poor as this this decision making, this uh, politically coherent group. Often, we we've always dis disregarded those people as as a society. Not me personally. I'm a part of that that group, so I can't. I, I see it every day. I know the, I know the, I know the brilliance of my people. Um, but yeah, often uh, society has been uh, unapproving of this this class, this cast of people, cast of racialized people like that. <laughs> but We've always we've always been able to change the dominant tide because uh, oftentimes the black working class they they the ones that demonstrate what uh what black cool is they instrument they 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 they, they put that to it to a to a song <laughs> they put that to a beat. <laughs> to a rhythm. Y'all going to them first. Y'all trying to copy them. 
But that's a whole other story, man. The middle class is... It's an elaborate group that deserve its own uh, reappraisals. Um, I also discussed the middle class before on my podcast a couple episodes ago about in relationship to respectability and um, hip-hop and other things. Um, Y'all should check that out. Um, But yeah, they deserve their own uh, set of analyzations in uh, the black working class deserve their own. And a lot of the, the activity, the political and organiza- organizational activity of the 60s was was wrought because of things that black working class and poor people were able and willing to do. Uh, the author discusses the Henning transcript. I wanted to cl- uh, clear that up for anybody that didn't understand that. Uh, the Hidden transcript is this well, the hidden, hidden in public transcripts are these ideas. Uh, I forgot the theorist that came up with it, but uh, Dr. Tricia Rose, she quotes that same twofold uh, thing within her book discussing uh, re-dis- uh, reinterpreting hip-hop in her uh, Black Noise. She used that same concept in theory for her book, but, uh, here he's, Robin D.G. Kelly is, um, using that to, using the hidden transcript to, to show that there's this, this hidden narrative that's, that's, that hasn't been shown or hasn't been acknowledged, and there's this public-facing transcript or narrative that's, the dominant one, that, that that's the one you hear about in schools, that's the one that gets taught to you in uh, class. Um, yeah, I just wanted to clear that up for anybody that uh, had that, had read that in, or had heard me read that, and uh, got confused. But that in relationship to that section in relationship to what I'm speaking here is a lot of the civil rights movement has been facilitated by a mischaracterization of uh, the black working poor. And oftentimes the, the black middle class functionaries of the movements, the petty bourgeoisie, the uh, The comprador class. <laughs> these people have been able to shape the narrative around these broad movements simply because they have more access to the uh, to the white media. Um, and I think all around, though, on a lot of the sides of the debate that we hear maybe between uh, uh, reparationists in a repatriationist is uh that that um these movements were uh is that they were uh monolithic and that they 
had one goal in mind that that goal transfers to now on both ends. Um, we we don't think of the nuances of these these movements and times often enough. We look at them as particular spurts of social energy by black people, and then that social energy is is uh, vocalized or televised to people of color, or black people, I ain't gonna say people of color, I'll never say that bullshit, hate that term, that's another show, <laughs> but uh, black people and then that energy is uh, brought back to the fore by just hearing it or reading about it. No, bro, you, we think that every, 100% that everything that Malcolm X said in, in uh, fucking 58, 60, can be can be uh, used today at its optimal level, and, it, and that can't be farther from the truth, man. Even this, even he changed. Even he changed. I love Malcolm. Malcolm was brilliant. Um, I loved Malcolm for a lot of things. But I also understood Martin. Uh, and Malcolm did too, after a while. And But these are the, the, the conflict is the popular narrative. That's that public transcript. The hidden transcript is the conflicts that, that, that sprang up between the Martin and the Malcolms. How uh, Malcolm's uh, proximity to that working class black background foregrounds him a certain way that uh, Martin had to grow into, he had to organize to, he had to be out on the ground stumping every day to get to that level of consciousness. And that's why you see at the end of their years that they they start to get to this point of uh, intersection. Not like that intersection, that malady bullshit y'all y'all peddling today. I mean, I ain't gonna call it bullshit. It, it's a theory. All theories can be be tested, should be tested though. In the words of Dr. Tommy J. Uh, Tommy J. Kirk. Uh, but I want to just read this one last, this one last, uh, one last section uh, from. Mr. Lester K. Spence and uh, in his book Knocking the Hustle where he discusses um, neoliberalism and how it uh, has taken over uh, contemporary black politics in terms of political thought, political philosophy. Neoliberalism is this idea that this common, this new common sense that um, you're supposed to do it yourself. You're supposed to pull up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You, 
you're supposed to be uh, not asking government for anything. Uh, and, and government should be uh, facilitated by business and by, by the market. Everything should be uh, tested through the market. That's this idea of neoliberalism that has taken over contemporary black politics. That's why you see um, today a lot of the former civil rights leaders of that time, they're getting propped up by these businesses and companies uh, like you see the CBC, uh, Congressional Black Caucus, they're, they're funded by a lot of the uh, Fortune, 5, Fortune 500 companies like Verizon and uh, Verizon and uh, AT&T, which, which these two companies, they are part of this group called ALEC. And ALEC was the creator of the standard ground law that that uh, Trayvon Martin was unfortunately a victim of. So you see the circle though? Like, do y'all see the insidiousness? Kind of. But uh, I just wanted to, well, the insidiousness of the, 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 the public transcript, that public narrative that we were given in Fed Force Fed, kind of. The hidden transcript is what's very enlightening. That's the one that's, that's getting people out of the dungeons. That's the one that's making shit change. Shit nobody else teaching us and telling us. It's always us, though. It's always the black working class. But we don't get the credit because we shit. We don't got the capital or the, the power shit. <laughs> but I just want to read this one section from his book. We think the decision to boycott was simple. It wasn't. 35,000 blacks in Montgomery had to be contacted and organized within days. Although given the given current technology, we could possibly reach that many people within an hour through Twitter, connecting and organizing. All of those people required a tremendous degree of coordination and negotiation. An action like the Montgomery bus boycott doesn't occur without thinking about dozens of details. It also doesn't occur without dealing with, hear me out, the different interests black people had. The segregated transportation system did not harm all blacks in Montgomery equally, um, as though, as often uh, thought about, we're often thought about as this monolithic group, like we're not, we're not that group. Um, continuing, blacks who didn't use the bus at all, for example, suffered less than blacks, primarily female domestic workers, who used the bus frequently. Segregation created a separate economy. The black-owned businesses provided many services that whites either wouldn't supply to blacks or wouldn't supply to blacks with the same degree of care they gave to whites. Montgomery uh, had several black taxi companies that had to be convinced to accept far cheaper bus fares from their passengers in support of the protest. Inasmuch as the taxi cab drivers and their had their own families, taking cheaper fares meant they would bring less money home to take care of their own responsibilities. So y'all I want to use that particular section to showcase just how unpractical boycott was even then even in the time most known for boycott civil rights time period.
Like we we pigeonhole these 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 tactics to this to this t- entire movement, not not taking into consideration the after effects of that movement, the uh, the things that could have been uh, worked out if they had a more monolithic. Uh, specific um, race class analysis of um, the social terrain that they were in in in, in Montgomery at the time. Um, shit. King himself say, um, well, he, he King says himself within which uh, which is quoted by Lester Spence in his book Knocking the Hustle. Uh, he kind of quotes King where he says, like, we didn't have the institutional backing. We didn't, we, we didn't have the people to, to keep this thing rolling. Uh, shit, the Montgomery bus, pod, boy, bus boycott only lasted 381 days, y'all. Um, and then I want to read just this last check, last section. Uh, just a second. Freezing both King and the Civil Rights Movement demobilizes black communities by creating a historically inaccurate perfect standard. That perfect, uh, pristine idea I was kind of getting at earlier. A perfect standard that they cannot possibly hope to meet. A perfect standard the people they are being compared to themselves didn't meet. Going too often to the past freezes our tactics, strategies, freezes the very languages we use to articulate our problem and with that i think i'm gonna just i'm gonna take off from this one uh oh yeah man uh i finally uh set up my supporting system on anchor so um if you guys are feeling my podcast if y'all like what i do here Y'all want to hear more, if you want to hear me read a lot more stuff, I'm, I'm more willing to uh, use whatever whatever y'all, y'all supply me with to go out and get more more material to read for y'all and to analyze and get y'all more perspective on. Because uh, a lot of people are surprisingly um, receptive of my, my opinions and my uh, perspectives, and I'm very appreciative that Appreciative of all y'all, man, for, for real, for real, because um, y'all, y'all ain't had to click follow. Y'all ain't had to click that link, <laughs> but y'all did. So I'm very appreciative of, appreciative of all y'all, man, for real. And, um, yeah, so support me, follow me, share me. Uh, my little reads the meter, man. It was a good one, I think. I think y'all gonna like this one. But, uh, Yeah, y'all have a good one, man. Be productive today. Peace.